Okay. How about we, how about we dive in? Can I just say really quickly, if you don't have a Bible, um, or if you ever forget your Bible, um, we do have spares up the back. So feel free to jump up and grab a Bible if you don't have one so that you can follow through here. <clears throat> and I will say, um, you know one of the best things about preaching? He's not wearing a mask. So who wants to preach next week? I'm away next week. Um, actually, Dev from Foster is going to come and preach again for us. Maybe some of you guys heard him last week. Um, so he's going to be here preaching next week, which will be awesome. Um, and as you notice, we just read from Acts chapter 17 again. Like if you were with us last week, you're like, hang on, didn't we read that last week? You know what we're going to do? We're going to try to squeeze a little bit more out of that passage. And in fact, I feel like there's about 10 sermons in me from that chapter. So I wonder whether we do a whole series on Acts chapter 17 one time. But let me just give you one more tonight. Let me give you another sermon from this passage. And particularly in regards to worshipping idols. That's what we're going to try and think about together tonight. Idol worship. And if you came tonight thinking, oh, good, I just simply want to be encouraged, um, I trust that there will be encouragement for you in this. But also it's an opportunity for us to do the kind of reflection, if you can manage it, the deep kind of reflection where you actually might feel quite challenged as we think about this topic together and I'm hoping that's going to be the case. Can you pick it up there in verse 16 and notice how Paul is feeling? Did you, did you catch it in the reading? Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly, what does it say? Distressed. I'm not sure when the last time you were greatly distressed, but he's, he's, he's not just a little bit concerned, he's greatly distressed. He's really troubled in his spirit deep down. Why is Paul greatly distressed? Read on that sentence, someone shout out the answer in a COVID safe way. Why is he distressed? Yeah, that's what it says, isn't it? Um, greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So this is a Greek city, the ancient city of Athens. Hundreds of idols. They were polytheists, the Greeks. So they would try and worship as many gods as they possibly can. They didn't want to miss out on any of the gods. So they made statues and idols and had them all around the city and tried to worship as many gods as possible. The Apostle Paul walks into this city having relatively recently become a convert to Jesus and realising who the real true living God is and he looks around this city and he's distressed to see so much religious activity but religious worship being poured out to what he would say are false gods and he's distressed about it. What does he do? Well, he doesn't just curl up in the fetal position and do nothing. What he does is he just does everything he can to speak publicly about the true and living God. So as you read on in the passage there, you see you get to verse 18. Look at the, the last half of 18 after he's been speaking in the marketplace. Um, these philosophers come to him and they say, look, this guy Paul, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So he's talking about a God that we haven't heard of. And, and they say this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul's out there in the marketplace trying to tell them about Jesus and the resurrection. Now just catch this for a minute. When he talks about the resurrection, he's likely referring to, on a level, Jesus' resurrection, but more likely referring to this thing called the resurrection, which is the moment where anyone who's ever lived and died will be raised 
all together to stand before the judge of the universe and be judged. And that's what's referred to in there in verse, what is it, verse 30, I think it says. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands everyone to repent. Oh, verse 31, he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. There's a day coming, and God knows what day it is, where the whole world will be raised and stand before God and be judged. And that judgment will be completely comprehensive in regards to everything you've ever done. But the key part of the judgment, the key thing you will be judged for is whether you've come to know God through Jesus. And that's what Paul is telling them. There's this thing called the resurrection coming where everyone will be raised and you'll be judged according to whether you've come to know God through Jesus. That's the big thing. And off the back of that, Paul says, so now's the time to repent. He doesn't just get distressed and babble his words. He calls the whole city to turn. And we just read that. Look at verse 30 again. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance like willfully ignoring. He look, overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, if you're new to these things, the word repent might be a bit of a Christian jargon kind of word, but the word repent just means turn around and go in the opposite direction. So here's a very core... This is the guts of what it means to become a Christian. It's to repent. It's to turn around and go the other way. So what that means is that to live without Jesus, to live without acknowledging the God of the Bible is to be walking in a particular direction. It's to be walking and having desires and worship and honour in a different direction from the God of the Bible. It's to be actually worshipping idols and it's to be walking and with your eyes set in a particular direction. But to become a Christian is literally to do this. And I don't really want you focusing on my body, but I kind of do want you focusing on me because I want you to see this and picture it. To become a Christian is to do this, is to be walking in one direction and to stop and turn around and walk in the opposite direction. It's to stop pursuing life and meaning and purpose and worship in idols, all things that are false gods. It's to stop doing that, turn around, put your eyes on the living God and worship him and follow him and that's what it is to be a Christian. You turn around and you walk in the other direction. That's what it means to repent. You stop doing that and you start doing this. But here lies the great temptation for everyone who actually turns to try and worship and follow the living God. What happens? And we see it right through history. You turn to worship the living God, but most people do a little bit of this, a little bit of looking back over the shoulder, a little bit of I'm missing what I used to do with my life, what I'm familiar with, what I found my security in. I'm missing, missing idol worship. So when you look at the followers of God right through history, they really struggled with this temptation to worship God, but they kept looking back here at idols and they wanted to hang on to worshipping idols as well. And so really what you've got the picture, I can't do it because I've got to hold the microphone in front of me, but you've got people who instead of having their chest and eyes focused that way, particularly they're straddling two worlds. They've got one arm and one eye kind of heading towards the living God and they've got the other arm and the other eye stretched back on worshipping idols. And here is what God's people, Israel, always struggled with. They knew they were meant to follow God, but they wanted idols as well. And so they're stretched and they're not doing either well. And, and God continually says to his people, 
stop worshipping idols and worship me. So you go to the Ten Commandments, and what are the first two commandments that God gives his people? It's, 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 it's have no other gods before me. And the second one's like it. Don't make any images or gods of me. So the first two commandments are about what it means to turn away from idols and worship the living God. Because the first thing Israel wanted to do when they left Egypt, they just wanted to turn back and go back to Egypt. But the big concept is, the big temptation that we struggle with, that God's people have always struggled with, is trying to follow God but still wanting and worshipping other things. I mean, if you've been um, diving into 1 and 2 Samuel, which we're heading into next in our series, um, and you've probably picked up in the first few chapters this repeated cycle for God's people. Over and over again, they, they turn to God, but then you turn your back for half a second and they've gone back to worshipping idols again. They worship Baals or Ashtoreths. And the reason why they do it, the reason why God's people keep worshipping idols is I, I think there's something really familiar about it. I think they're surrounded by the nations. Their neighbours were all worshipping in that way and it's really hard to not be influenced by everyone around you and what they're doing. And also the big thing that's going on inside of them is just wayward hearts. That Though on one level they want to worship God and follow God, their hearts also just want to bail on him and head in the other direction. And so as we dive into Samuel, we're going to be reminded of that cycle. I mean, you see it all the way through Judges. God's people just keep turning back and worshipping idols. Now, here's the thing. Here we are in 2021. And, you know, the easiest thing for us to do when we read about the history of how people have attempted to follow God is to just scoff, yeah? Just kind of shake our heads and go, what's with you guys? You know, just stop worshipping idols and just worship God. It's really easy for us to shake our heads when we look at new believers here in the New Testament and, and they need to be continually told, stop going to the pagan temples. Don't do it anymore. Stop worshipping idols. It's, it's, it's almost like, why don't they just get that? You know what? It's easy for us to shake our heads, but here's the truth. And you probably know where I'm heading with this. The truth is the same struggle for God's people is alive and well today. We struggle with the same dynamic of wanting to turn and follow Jesus and know God through Jesus, but hang on to and keep sacrificing to idols that we're meant to have left behind. We want God and everything else that everyone else around us has got and is sacrificing for. We want God and idols. The tricky thing is the idols today that you and I are tempted to worship and do worship are less obvious, but it doesn't mean they're any less real. Less obvious in that they're not necessarily physical statues that we do little offerings to. So, right? so you, can't, you can't spot them as easily, but they're no less real. We still worship many things. And so what we need to do is work a little harder to understand what the idols are that we worship. And if you're sitting here thinking... I don't worship any idols apart from God. I wonder whether tonight might be a moment where you actually catch a glimpse of how you actually do or might worship a number of things as well as the living God. And, and, and that's what we're tempted to do. We won't let go of God entirely to worship other things. We'll try and do both. It's called syncretism where you just kind of mix in what everyone else in your culture 
is trying to do with their life. He's trying to mix that into your Christian life so you get everything. You get God and everything that everyone else has got. That's what you'll be tempted to do because that's what we're told to expect to be able to do. Let me ask you this question. If the Apostle Paul was to walk around our city, if he was to come to the Coffs Coast, if he was just to come and wander around the whole mid-north coast or even just kind of the whole east coast of Australia and kind of get our culture, what would he be distressed to see? What would be the idols that the Apostle Paul or just someone from another time or another culture walks in and sees immediately about our culture and the idols we worship? What do you think the Apostle Paul would have to say to us tonight if he was standing right here and had the chance to speak to us on behalf of God by his spirit? What would he have to say? What would he be distressed about? And can you and I try to break down our own culture and spot the idols of our time and our land? What are the monuments in this place? Can we open up our ears to to listen to the way our culture speaks? Can we open up our eyes to see what's really going on in the place where we live? And then can we do the even harder work? And this is the harder one. It's one thing to try and spot what's going on in your culture, which is not easy. It's another thing altogether to then see which of the idols of our culture are your own personal idols. Which of the idols of our culture have actually become yours now again we're not talking about physical statues here that you've got to carve out with your own hands but we are talking about things or at least we're talking about passions and desires of our hearts that we regularly sacrifice for that we regularly put our hope in And you might not have carved them out of wood or out of stone with your physical hand, but you've carved out those idols, those passions, with your time and your energy and your money. And they are the idols of your heart. So do you know what the idols of your heart are? And I say plural because there's probably a bunch of them. You know, and many godly men and women through history have tried to do a really good job helping us understand how right through history Christians continue to worship many things. You know, who was it who said um, the heart is like an idol factory where the minute you put one to death and walk away from it, another idol will just pop up. Someone help me out here. Who is that? It was Spurgeon. I'm just going to claim him, all right? No, it was, um, it's Lewis or Spurgeon or some one of those guys says our hearts are like idol factories. That just makes sense to me. So, but the question I want you to consider tonight, and here's where it gets hard. Here's where it gets real hard. Do you know your idols? Do you know the things you're tempted to and actually are worshipping as well as the true and living God? Do you know the things you worship in your heart? Do you know the good things in your life that have become God things? You know what I mean by that? It's like the helpful things and enjoyable things in your life that become ultimate for you. And you actually put your hope in them. And you worship and sacrifice for them instead of or as well as the true and living God. Do you know what your idols are? Do you know how to find out what your idols are? And here's the thing, I am not going to tell you 
what your idols are. Because I'll tell you what, if there's one thing I've learned over the years is if you just tell someone what you think their problem is, chances are they're not going to own it. So the only way you're actually going to get to have a sense of your own idols and turn from them is if you dig in here and you spot them yourself and you own what's really happening and then you take responsibility to turn and keep turning from idols. And that's the Christian life, a life of continual repentance, turning away from idols, things that do not have life in them, things that will not provide you what you're looking for anyway, and turning toward the living God who made you and knows you and knows how to satisfy your deepest, deepest longings and desires. Maybe you've even got a sense already tonight what your idol is. Maybe you've spent time doing this already. But before we get to some questions that I want you to ask yourself... I want to say this, you won't spot your idols unless you're motivated to. So what is it that can motivate a Christian to really want to hunt around in their own lives and see their idols? Well, let me suggest these should be our motivations. Number one, motivated by the fact that the true and living God is really the only one who's worthy of the worship, the deep worship of my life. Let that motivate you. A desire to worship the true and living God. An understanding of him and a growing understanding of him as being the one who is high and exalted. He's lifted up. He's so glorious and majestic because of who he is, what he's like, what he's done and what he's done for you. He's just so exalted and highly glorious that you're like, I see that he's the one and he's the only one who's deserving of my worship. He's the only one who's deserving of everything I've got that I could possibly pay homage to. He's the true and living God who made me and knows me and actually knows how to satisfy my deep desires. And so be motivated by that. And I think if there's anything we can give ourselves to over the years as Christians, it's getting a bigger picture of God, getting a clearer glimpse of his majesty and his glory. And this is partly what Paul tries to do here with this crowd in Athens when he walks into the Areopagus. He, he, he starts by God, talking about God and he says, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about the true and living God. He's not one among many. He's the only God. He's the God who made the world and everything in it. He's the one who sustains the world and everything in it. He's the one who gives you life and breath and everything else. There's no one else who gave you things, just the living God. And if that's the case, then, then you're made by him, you're made for him, you live in his world. He's sustaining your life. He owns your life. You belong to him. It just makes sense, doesn't it, if that's, if that's true, that he's the only one who's worthy of your worship. And, you know, when you get to the final book of scripture the book of the revelation you get these visions and they're beautiful visions and they're visions of of heaven but really they're visions of the reality of life knowing that there is a god in heaven and you get these pictures of god in the center enthroned in his glory and his majesty is so insane that everyone's kind of standing back but there's concentric circles of rings around God as he's enthroned and they are kind of, you know, uh, I, well, there's lots of discussion about what these people are, these beings are, but they certainly represent all created beings 
animals and everything. They represent all humanity. They represent the church. But basically, it's just this Mexican wave of praise rippling out from the center where everyone just keeps bowing and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy. You are worthy of our praise and honor and glory. And you just, I don't know if you've spent time looking at Revelation 4 and 5. You just get this vision of the reality of life where God is at the center and he's, and he's, he's worthy of that position and therefore worthy of all the worship from every living creature in the universe. And if that's the case, if he's worthy of the central position in the universe, he's worthy of the central position in your life, he's worthy to be seated on the throne of your heart and receive from you every ounce of honour and homage and sacrifice that you could ever give him. You can never worship him more than he's worth. So let's be motivated by the reality that our God is exalted and worthy of worship. And in relation to that, be motivated by this. How stupid are we to keep worshipping idols? Now, some of the prophets and in the Psalms, they do this thing where they just kind of bring out the stupidity of how silly it is that we worship idols. And they talk about the concept of getting a lump of wood and carving it out into this thing and popping it up on the shelf and then giving it a name and bowing before it and speaking to it and asking it for things. It's just it's silliness. And it's really easy for us to think about that in regards to statues. But can you see the idols that you worship in your life? And hopefully you'll see what some of them are in a minute. And can you see them as silly? I mean, one of the classic idols of a Western culture is possessions. And, and you can make an idol out of things like a car or a caravan or a bike or a surfboard or technology. You can make an idol out of those things, but you know really it's not about the thing. It's about what you're hoping the thing will give you. Some of us go after possessions because you think, if I can get that possession and more like that, I'll feel secure. If I can get a bank account that hits that certain amount, then that is where my security will lie because you know you're hunting for security. Some of us go after possessions because we think in getting those possessions, my peers will look at me and go, wow, they're one of those people with those things. So what are you really after? You're after acceptance or you're after acknowledgement. You're after just you want to be loved and respected. You can go after possessions, but really it's the thing underneath it. You can go after possessions because you think um, something else I was thinking there. There's all kinds of motivations that lie beneath what we do. It's never about the thing. It's about what you're hunting for underneath. And here's the thing. Idols will never give you what you're hunting for. I mean, we know that. Every time we buy something, we then, you know, we get that buyer's remorse or very soon afterwards we shake our head and go, yeah, it didn't do it. Or maybe the next one will and we know it doesn't do it. And it's because we're hunting for something deeper and idols never give it. They never give it. So whilst we exalt the living God and know he's worthy of all worship, also look at the idols that hopefully you'll spot tonight and you are spotting and tell yourself, they're stupid <laughs> and they won't do it. They won't provide for you what you're hunting for. Final bit of motivation to go hunting for idols and then we'll go hunting. I promise you we'll get there. All right. Final bit of motivation for going hunting for idols is you will be judged. 
You know, sounds a bit heavy, but you will be judged, meaning you will one day stand before the true and living God and need to give an account of your life. You'll need to give an account of how you've spent your days and why you spent them that way. And, and, and so cast your mind forward to that moment and try to picture the kind of things you might be embarrassed as you stand before the living God, admitting that you spent your time and energy and finances doing with your life and try and bring that into the present and just know you'll be held accountable for how you live, what you've done with your days. I mean, ultimately, you're judged according to whether you've come to know God through Jesus. But then on a secondary level, you're going to be held accountable for what you've done with your days, how you've helped others come to know God through Jesus what you've done with your words and your life to actually spread the glory of God by helping people to come into relationship with him. And I'll tell you what, if there's one thing that I know about trying to share Jesus with people is that if you're worshipping the same idols they are, they will scratch their heads and wonder why you're calling them to come and worship Jesus if you're living the same way they are. And they perceive you to be going after all the same things with all the same insecurities and all the same fears and all the same desires, trying to be met in the same dumb idols. Why would someone come and worship Jesus? Yeah? So there's some motivation for us, and I'm hoping that will help you get psyched to hunt for what your idols might be. So let's try to identify some idols. Oh, my watch still doesn't work. It says 3 o'clock. All right, I've got plenty of time. Two ways to identify your idols. First one's real quick, second one's a little bit longer. First one is this. There's a shortcut to identifying your idols. You ready for it? Ask someone who knows you well. It's dangerous. It's brutal on relationship. But ask someone who knows you well, what are my idols? What do I worship as well as or instead of the true and living God? Invite them to be honest. Know that they won't be fully honest you'll very rarely come across a person who goes full disclosure with you because we can't handle it. It's too brutal. So whatever they give you, it's a sanitised version. But the person who knows you really well and loves you well ought to be able to share with you what your idols are. If you're a parent, you can probably spot what the idols of your kids' hearts are because we start worshipping idols from very early ages and we've all got predispositions to worshipping certain things. One of the best parenting books I read or skimmed or something like that, I've read a lot of parenting books, happy for all the help I can get, um, was one of Ted Tripp's or Paul David Ted Tripp, what's his name, Tripp, Shepherding a Child's Heart. And his baseline thesis is, Hunt and try to understand what, the, what your child's, the idols of their heart are and shepherd their heart to worship the true and living God. Yeah? Try and spot the idols in the hearts of your kids and help them to worship the true and living God. Now, that's not easy to do, but if you get in the practice of trying to spot idols, then you'll be able to spot them there as well. Um, Now, as I mentioned kids there, some of you immediately go, oh, good, I'm just going to try and think about everyone else's idols. (laughs) And you can get stuck thinking about that. But transition with me back to this point of, now you need to spot your own. In fact, the better you get at spotting your own idols, the more helpful you'll be to those around you and helping them to see their idols. How do you spot your own idols? I'm going to give you a whole bunch of questions here. You might want to write some of them down. You might want to just listen to them. You might want to come back and listen to this podcast again during the week to catch the questions again. I'm just going to fly them at you. And sometimes I'm going to pause to just let you think about it for a bit. 
One of the most obvious ways to spot your idols is ask yourself this question. What do I sacrifice for? What do I give my time, my talent and my treasure to? Time, talent, treasure. Time, have a look at your calendar. That might be a helpful way to do it. Dive in and look at the amount of chunks of time that you spend on different things. You might say, oh, I just work. Yep, okay. What do you do with the other moments in your calendar? What's going on there? What do you spend your time on? It might be social things. You might have, if you've got kids, you might have your kids involved in so many activities. What's going on behind all that? You might just be hunting to have lots and lots of time for leisure. You might have lots of time for busyness. Just look at your calendar. What do you do with your time? Because that's the most valuable thing you have, really. So what are you giving it to? And how much do you apportion to what might more strictly be things to do with God and loving him and loving others toward him? What's, how's your calendar go? That will be one indication. Um, how does you, what, do you, what do you sacrifice for, meaning what do you give your treasure to? So what do you give your money to? So pull out your bank statement. Trawl through it. What do you see? Now you might say, oh, I've just got all these fixed monthly costs that I've got no way out of. But there was a point where you made decisions where you committed to those fixed monthly costs. What was going on lurking in your heart that helped you make that decision that you're now committed to? And what do you do with all your discretionary income? Now you might think, we're good in our society, it's hilarious. We're hilariously good at saying, I'm, I'm just crying poor, like I don't have much money. But you will have some discretionary funds. What do you do with that? Where do you spend that? Um, what do you spend it on? What do you do with your splurge account? Is, is, is it a savings account that you find security in? What do you spend your money on? Is it entertainment for escapism is it fashion for image is it sports and equipment is it trips away is it food is it possessions have a look and just none of us really like looking at our bank statements mostly because people don't understand what they're doing with their money secondly if you do understand it you're like that's not great and so i don't really want to face that so brave it Brave it and have a look at what you're doing with your finances and that might, I would say, likely will reveal to you something of at least one of your idols, what you spend your money on. Time, treasure, talent. What do you do with your gifts and abilities? The things you're naturally good at, the things you enjoy doing, the things that others have said, you know what you're really good at? It's this and that. What do you do with those things? Where do you offer them? Where do you give them? Because where you see where you offer your talents will probably direct you towards what you think is worthwhile really and where you're putting your hope. Yeah? So that's going to help you know where your idol is. How you going? Can you keep walking around your life a little bit more? I'm not saying it's easy. Walk around your life in the sense that you go to your home right now, where you live. Just picture that for a minute. You might even want to close your eyes. Um, what's in the driveway? What's in the shed? What do you got a lot of? What are you collecting? What do you wish you had more of? What do you keep looking at on Marketplace? 
what are the things that are on the walls of your house inside? Like, what are the pictures? Usually we want to celebrate the things we value. So what's on your walls? What do you spend a lot of time and money getting right in your realm? What do you want people to notice when they walk in to your house or your unit or the place where you live? What do you hope they see? What do you hope they don't notice or hear about? What really matters to you? You got something? Second last question. Take a walk around your emotional life for a minute. What gets you most excited? When are you on your highest high? Is it to do with when finances are going well? Is it to do with when relationships are going well? Is it to do with your success in your career or however you might define success? Is it when there's a family moment that you're really living for? When are you most excited? When do you giggle the most? And likewise, when are you most depressed? When do you hit your lowest lows? What do you fear most? Is it health things? Is it relationship things when they're broken? Do you fear not being able to live that epic lifestyle? Is that the thing? What gets you angry? Maybe when something's taken from you. What fires you up? What is the thing there? Where do you run to for comfort? Is it pain, relief that you're ultimately hunting for in life? Is it just you want to rid your life of pain and you do anything to get rid of any kind of pain? So you'll medicate with prescriptions or you'll medicate with alcohol or you'll medicate with online shopping or you'll medicate with binge watching or you'll medicate with busyness. We medicate with all kinds of things because we're trying to remove pain. The removal of pain can be an idol. You're hunting for real rest. It's not going to be found in simply removing physical pain. What do you boast about? What can't you help yourself just to kind of drop into the conversation when you're chatting with someone? What do you, if you're on social media, what do you think about posting, whether you post it or not? What would you like to post? What do you take photos of so that you might post? How do you define success? Education? Position? Epic family? What are the good things in your life that have become or are becoming ultimate things? Whose approval do you seek? Who do you really want to notice you and what you're like and what you're doing? Is it that romantic person? <laughs> is, it, is it your peers? Is it your boss? Is it your parents? What really matters to you? Final question. I don't know how many questions I've done. What do you dream about changing? In your life? Is it your body? Is it your house? Is it your marriage? Is it your relationship status?
I'm trusting you've caught something about yourself from those questions. I'm hoping you go and think some more about them. Let me finish by simply saying this. The truth is our hearts, our souls, the very centre of who we are, are little idol factories. And we'll worship many things. And we live in a society where we are able to worship many things. But it's just as pointless and futile as carving out a wooden statue and bowing down to it. Is to hunt for finding, you know, contentment and satisfaction from your deepest cravings in the things of this world. All the while the true and living God watches on, watches what we do, full of love and mercy, but grieving as we chase after idols. Commanding us and calling us over and over again to turn and repent and worship him alone, the only place where everything you're hunting for can be found and will be found. Comfort and relief, security and contentment, acceptance, loved, known and rest can only be found in worshipping the true and living God through Jesus. Lord God, help us to keep repenting and turning from idols to worship you. We need his help and let me pray that he would help us. Father God, left to our own devices, we find it very hard to see our own problems. We find it hard to see what our hearts are going after. But Lord, would you illuminate our minds and our eyes and our ears to see the idols of our heart? Would you help us see and would you help us grieve like you grieve? And Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us turn and turn again and turn again and turn again towards you, the living God, who is worthy of all of our worship and all of our sacrifice and all of our days and everything we could ever give. Lord, we're so dependent on you doing a work in us by your spirit. Please pour out your spirit in that way on our lives among us so you get more of the glory that you deserve and from us more of the worship that we can offer. We love you, Lord. Amen.